the atmospheric change potential of the sequential spraying system. So we've talked about all the different preps, but Hugh Lovell, the writer of Quantum Agriculture, um, who's since passed, a great biodynamic elder, um, he really got famous traveling around Australia making it rain from exactly what we've just discussed. So, you know, first thing, they'd mix the biodynamic corn manure and spray first thing in the morning. You have an outward upward expression of a prep during an outward expression energetically of the earth and then in the evening he'd spray the biodynamic horn manure downward inward expression of the preparation during a downward inward expression of the energetic cycle of the day the very next morning you would have prepared your horsetail boil it ferment it and you'd spray that in the morning so now you have another silica preparation outward during an outward energetic time and then the next evening you'd spray the biodynamic uh, barrel compost which is basically just horn manure mixed with basalt and eggshells which was a creation of maria thunes and so you're acknowledging kind of tipping your hat to the daily energetic inward outward pulsing cycle and using these preparations at the appropriate time to pump complexity that's appropriate to that lever that's occurring. And every time I've ever done it, it always rains on that third day. No matter if it's middle of summer, not an ounce of precipitation in you know the two-week forecast or not, it always precipitates. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is Where Hope Grows. Hey, everyone. This is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Welcome back, you beautiful cosmic creatures. It is so wonderful to have you here today as we journey into the esoteric realms of biodynamic agriculture. And... While some of you will be rolling your eyes and quickly coming to a conclusion that this is going to be too quote-unquote woo-woo or mystical, occult, I believe that there is something incredibly important to observe as we consider the interconnections of all life as it relates to the infinite energy that exists, not only before us, but into the vast expanses of the cosmos. And with all life, there is wisdom in considering cycles of outward expansion, inward growth, back to outward expansion, back to inward growth. These are as old as time and a potential invitation to synchronize ourselves and our intentions with that of a greater system in nature. I've started implementing biodynamic agricultural practices here at Rome Ranch, and it has not only had tremendous positive impact on this land that we call home, but it has created a deeper connection within myself and my place within a greater universe. So on today's episode, I am joined by my friend, Adam Russell. Adam is an incredible educator and practitioner of biodynamics. He's also a co-founder of Symbiosis Texas, which is an amazing regenerative agricultural land consulting business 
These guys are devoted to guiding landowners back to nature, abundance, and wellness. What I admire most about Adam is his ability to communicate the complexities of biodynamics into a practical and easy to digest format that resonates with the greater architecture found in nature. So join in today as we learn about the principles of biodynamics, how spirit flows through all life, how the cosmos impact what's happening here on earth, and of course, how the biodynamic preparations are created and designed to harmonize with nature. So enjoy the abundance that is packed into this conversation. Without further ado, here is Adam Russell. So are you ready to get a little bit weird? Let's let's get super weird. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I just love telling, reflecting on the story of how our paths crossed. And so just re- reflect on that really quick. When we met, you reached out to me through email. I received a message from a stranger at that point in time. And uh, you, you said something like, hey, I need a uh, 10 to 30 pounds of bison manure, can, or no, 10 to 30 gallons of bison manure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what does a gallon of bison manure look like? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we didn't have a rapport relationship. And my first instinct was like, dude, this guy doesn't get it. Like this manure is a sacred resource. This is, you know, mother nature's gift to cycling the fertility that we're trying to build at our ranch. Who does this guy think he is coming out and just taking 20 Stealing to, our yeah, gold. 10 to 30 gallons of this good stuff? Um, but you were just persistent and, and you kind of explained, hey, I'm looking to make biodynamic 500 horn manure. And I didn't know what that was at that point in time. So I, I looked it up and, and then I was flattered because I was like, okay, well, this guy is actually <laughs> trying to source uh, maybe some of the, the best stuff out there. He's not messing around. And so then you came out and we hung out, we collected manure, we did some Agni Hocha, which mm-hmm. was pretty amazing. We'll get into that today. We did some dowsing mm-hmm. and I think a friendship was, was born. And so um, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for just... I mean, y'all have done so much in this field of education, awareness, regenerative agriculture on the real on boots on the ground, which has been so needed. You know, there's so much theory and speakers and books out there. But for the folks who are actually on the ground, getting the communities together, moving functional things forward, y'all are doing an incredible job. Thank you. And. And I think, you know, as we get into biodynamics, I think this is one of the things that it it has been in my life is it always draws me towards more rich people and experiences. Um, you know, the whole thing of I was looking for bison manure and I found you and Rome Ranch and Force of Nature Meets and these uh, incredible conferences that y'all put on and all of it came from just looking for a material to bury in a horn for a winter. <laughs> you know, it could have been anyone. Yeah. I thought it was going to be an 80 year old farmer, <laughs> uh, but no. Uh, yeah. After meeting y'all that first day, I went home and told my wife, I was like, I think I met my people. Like they're doing it. They are excited and passionate and doing good things at big scale. Yeah. So, that's thanks. cool, man. Absolutely. It, it reminds me of just this idea of, of where energy goes energy flows Mm -hmm. and life begets life. And it's this virtuous cycle. And I think that is one of those kind of foundational principles I can grasp with biodynamics. But to begin, how do you define biodynamics? What is it and what is it rooted in? So biodynamics, a definition would just be kind of the 
we're we're looking at biology, the living systems and structures and and communities of this planet. And we're not just looking at the the dead dissectable version, you know, the corpse on a table that we can say these are ligaments and those are muscles, but we're looking at the actual living dynamic version of it. You know, we we know that when when we die or an animal dies, something is gone, some spirit, some soul, whatever you want to qualify that as anyone who's watched something transition from life to death, that thing that moves on, that's what we're really interested in. Like, how does that work? And that really gets into these like dynamic interplay. It Days are different than nights. Cycles of summer are different than cycles of winter. We interact differently during um, different seasons and cycles of ourselves. Um, so it really tries to look at what is actually happening in the living world. I, um, I think everyone can relate to like that seasonal shift and that mm -hmm. push pull. We're going into, you know, fall quickly into winter here. And for me, I always find myself going not more dormant in a sense, but my energy is going more inward than outward. Like in, in the summer, I find myself outdoors celebrating shirt off, mm -hmm. receiving all that sunlight energy. And then, uh, really motivated to like run and do cardio. And then the winter, it's the opposite. Yeah. Like a bear. Yeah. Coffee, books, yeah. naps. So those are the cycles or at least an example of a tangible cycle. Absolutely. It's, it's very much everything gets into this inward and outward expression. You know, we're on this planet earth whizzing through the cosmos at incredible speeds and there's no up and down as we, as we say, but there's an inward and an outward pulsing. And that happens on every scale, on the smallest scale of your heart's beating to the largest scale of the, the earth is exhaling during the summertime and throwing fruits into the treetops. And it's inhaling during the wintertime, digesting leaf matter and field stubble so that it can be ready and fertile for, for the springtime. So how did you find yourself beginning to appreciate those cycles and that movement within the greater ecosystem that we're a part of? Honestly, I think it really started when I was alpine climbing in the North Cascades in Washington state, because I would notice that during different moon cycles, we would have different successes in climbing. So if we were just going to go try to, let's say, climb a north route on Mount Rainier, you know, some bold endeavor uh, we would definitely not plan it just before a new moon because when we were climbing just before a new moon, everything felt heavy. We felt just wanting to sleep in, not being very motivated. It felt like a refrigerator was on your back trying to climb up a mountain. But if you planned those big ambitious trips just before a full moon, when all of the energy was at its apex outward, then it felt like you were being pulled up by kind of marionette strings. You know, you weren't even struggling. You were just chatting, having a great time, telling jokes while you hiked up the mountain with your heavy pack and everything felt simple and easeful and just joyful. And so it was kind of this contemplation of, oh, okay. If the moon has that much impact on tides and on us, then how, how do we integrate that into to foods? And, and obviously there's tons of stories about 
your old timer farmers who just knew these things, you know, this was old folk knowledge. Um, and so along that path, I found the biodynamic calendar. And when I started to correlate, um, climbing to the biodynamic calendar, started to have a whole lot more success climbing on fruit days than on root days, <laughs> which is just kind of a fun personal experiment. That is really cool. I think about these cycles. Um, well, first of all, back up. I think typically people are more focused on the energy cycles or the energy influence on our bodies and on our minds based on maybe the sun. Mm-hmm. And because we're, uh, we function in the daytime, we sleep in the nighttime. And so like as not night being a nocturnal being, there's maybe not as much of an appreciation for what's happening mm. with the moon. However, this doesn't seem that wild or far out to me because I, you know, on our ranch, whenever we have a full moon cycle, um, and we have pregnant bison, I mean, it's very likely that that could time to where the night of the full moon, some kind of forces are going to happen to where we have massive birthing that happens overnight. Mm-hmm. It happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, that's one, you know, example. And then another example anecdotally that I've heard is just on full moon nights, like ER rooms are just absolutely bananas because humans are just being a little bit more, more careless, a little bit more reckless and getting into trouble. Yeah. And on a purely physiological standpoint, one of my uh, dear friends is a pediatric ICU doctor. And, uh, and she mentioned that absolutely we see the highest incidence of pediatric seizures during full moons, which correlates to the amount of energy is in the top of the organism, maybe too much energy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, and that's really what biodynamics gets into. It looks at the content of the individual thing, the plant or the person, but it also appreciates and acknowledges the greater context of your place, your property, the boundaries of your property, and even greater into the greater context of what's the moon doing? What are the greater celestial planetary bodies in our solar system doing and how are they impacting uh, what plants are able to do or not able to do. Um, So going back to your question of where did biodynamics start from, it started from a series of seven lectures given in the 1920s by a man named Rudolf Steiner, who at the time was a kind of a spiritual scientist uh, and farmers were just asking, hey, what do you have what are your thoughts on farming? Because after they started using some of the uh, industrial bagged fertilizers, they noticed that the vitality and quality of their their food was decreasing and they were concerned. So for 10 days, Rudolf Steiner was invited to this series of about 500 different farmers in Austria. And he just gave a series of seven lectures. And out of those seven lectures came his biodynamic agriculture book and everything else has come out of that. And if you read that book, it's pretty cryptic. Um, and I've really enjoyed this, uh, agriculture abridged by Jeff Poppin. Um, it kind of simplifies some pretty cryptic words from a, a person who wasn't a farmer, but he just had some very intriguing insight on how life and life processes work. So that's really where it came from. And, um, so f- f- we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of those that lecture series uh, this year. So very appropriate that we're sitting here now. That's amazing. We, um, I, I read that book. You might have recommended it. That was kind of a starting point for me to better understand uh, biodynamic agriculture. 
And within the first, man, maybe like two or three pages, they got into this concept of, of quantum physics, which I would be too intimidated to even try to explain this or understand this. But what I really took away as one of like these key core principles that has really expanded how I view land and view relationships and view energy is this whole concept of the observer and a phenomena being intricately connected. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like, um, like, uh, what you look for is what you will find. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, in, in the, yeah, the observer affects the experiment. Yes. Um, you know, and on the, on the human scale, there is a, there's a, something called a polyvagal theory. Uh, and my wife is a, a trauma-informed therapist. And it's the same idea of if, if I come into a room expecting that you're upset with me or that you're mad at something I've done, even though you're, you're totally happy, you're happy to see me. None of this is true, but in my body, I'm, ex- I, th- I think you're pretty upset with me. So I come in feeling kind of shameful, kind of standoffish. And now you who walked into the room expecting to be in a, you know, joyful experience of sharing, feel this from me and you kind of shut down also. And so now in a very personal way, we see what we expected to see. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And you see that with dogs too, all the time. Pets, they're so sensitive to, or in tune with their owner or their master. They can just feel that energy. But even, I don't know, remembering when I was a child, when my mom walked in, I knew exactly if she was in a good mood or a bad mood before she said a word, just based on this energy field that she carried. And now that I'm a parent, I can have the same experience with my child. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know there was a name to that polyvagal theory. Yeah. It's, like it. it's a good one to, to just, you know, appreciate where our, our minds, hearts, and bodies are at before we enter into an interaction with others. Yeah. Cause so we're moving so quickly that sometimes we don't even know where our heads are at when we sit down to do something. And then we create an unexpected series of events. Absolutely. And I think with, with agriculture, with, co-creating on landscapes, it's a human tendency to look out and to almost find the things that they don't desire. So Mm -hmm. like you're always more likely going to identify undesirables. So in in like our context, that would be mesquite trees or prickly pear cactuses or or ash junipers, things like this that typically uh, we're told we should not have on our landscape. But once you shift that perspective and you start saying, well, what do I, what do I want to see? Mm-hmm. Then you start seeing the things that you desire and they just pop up. They manifest in front of you. And I have a really terrible story about like w- when this really clicked for me, um, I almost got bit by a rattlesnake because it was very obvious there was a rattlesnake underneath my child's stroller and it was rattling, rattling, rattling. But as uh, the observer to that phenomena, there was no comprehension or even thought that that might be a a snake. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, maybe it's a hummingbird, maybe it's a cricket, maybe it's a weird frog. And I almost got bit by that snake. And so again, you know, like just if I would have at least had any kind of comprehension or cognitive open-mindedness to think that that was a snake, I would have, I would have identified that way before it struck at me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's a spicy situation. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, um, well, that this is, you know, we're getting into some of these, the topics that I wanted to go to, but um, in your opinion, what's been the most impactful or transformative change um, in your mindset as a result of biodynamics? 
I think probably the the biggest shift is this idea of everything is an indicator and everything is trying to inform you as the land steward, as a co-creator, and to help you understand what the land is needing, what your crop is needing. And so just as you mentioned, you know, so often um, when we walk into a growing space with a client or a landowner, we quickly see, well, that's the weed that I don't want. You know, that before we even get into the, all the things that they do want, what are they striving for? What do they hope to see on their land in five, 10, 25 years? Uh, we get that thing keeps coming back. And there's this frustration and animosity and competition, me versus land kind of mentality right there, you know, head to head fighting, attacking, pulling, cutting, spraying, killing uh, dynamic instead of kind of softening and like, what is that thing telling me? Why is, why are the conditions conducive to that living thing over any others here now? Because nature is always going to self prune itself. It's always going to be moving towards more complexity and awareness. It's going to be evolving towards more adaptation and it's going to be trying to weed out the seek the, the weed out the wick. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, having a hard time talking this morning. Uh, it's going to weed out the old and the sick so that it's always getting a stronger system. So when we look at weeds, for example, generally a lot of the weeds that we see as undesirable are thorny, deep tap roots, can't pull them out, continue to sprout from their buds like mesquites. Um, but that deep, deep tap root is sending down basically mineral harvesting drill bits to pull up minerals, drop it in its leaf structure and build more mineral rich soil for other plants to use. Um, and so the answer is, oh, those weeds are here because I have mineral deficient soils. And if I fix the mineral problem and make it more bioavailable to living soils, then other plants that are more desirable will come and inhabit that. And same thing with insects. It's this uh, thing of why are they here? What are they telling me? You know, insects have a very simple gut that can only consume simple sugars. Whereas we have pretty complex guts that want amino acids and proteins and lipids and fats and all these higher end nutritive abilities that plants bring. And so if a plant is of higher nutritive quality, insects will not eat it. So if you see insects chewing on your whatever, it's a good indicator of like, hey, we can do better here. There's room for improvement. And so I think the biggest thing that biodynamics has brought into my life is just this curiosity of what's going on here? You know, what am I missing? Um, and just kind of a playfulness um, to just ponder and contemplate instead of having to know and having to know the right answer uh, and being willing to just find my own personal path and I think probably the biggest thing is that acknowledgement of our own innate intuition is a beautiful, powerful thing that we often kind of get beaten out of us through our own schooling. Um, so really just kind of given permission to just be quiet and still and listen to what strange curiosity might emerge. Like, 
I should probably go find 30 gallons of bison manure and see what comes out of that. <laughs> what, um, I think that's so well said. And I'm thinking, listening, looking into nature, trusting your instincts, um, going back to like more of the conventional mindset where you have these indicators and we'll just for this sake of argument, it can be anything, but we'll say thistles. I feel like thistles are all over the world yeah. and typically regarded as, um, non-cerebral. So it, the, in the common setting, the response is, Hey, I got to remove those thistles pronto, mm -hmm. either chemically, mechanically with a till or mm -hmm. uh, shredder or whatever. Um, what happens and how does that impact the system's desire to be more complex over time? And the question is, what happens when we continue to remove them? Exactly. Basically, we just stunt the successional system that's already in progress. So, you know, succession is a topic that everyone should just look up on Google, Google some images, and you'll see, you know, our first primary successional species are woody, thick tap roots, net roots, things that are just going to hold the soil together and start pulling up minerals. Usually they're thorny and pokey and poisonous because they're basically trying to keep out all of nature and say, hey, look, there's been a disturbance. Y'all messed this area up. Now we're fixing it. And so, yeah, they're pokey and thorny and thistles and they sting you. Um, and they're basically letting you know that just just stay out. I'm working hard over here fixing the problem. Um, and so whenever we chop those down or poison them, we're just resetting the successional process so that those are the only plants that have conditions conducive to live. And so we're just slowing down everything that we want to do. You know, a different approach would be, you know, there's a couple great books, the Pfeiffer, What Weeds Are Telling You and Weeds uh, Control Without Poisons. And they both, you can look up the, the, the thistle and it'll tell you exactly, you know, thistles are an indicator of deficiencies of these minerals. And so how we might do that is if we're going to mow something like that, go ahead and find what minerals are deficient in that area. Make a brew of the biodynamic preparations as well as those specific liquid fermented minerals, uh, probably from advancing ac ecological agriculture because they have great specific fermentations of specific minerals. Um, and then spray it on those thistles and then mow them. So that we're basically speeding succession up a year or two, you know, as if those thistles had already pulled up the deep minerals and laid them down for three years in a row. And now you're working with kind of that natural system and its indicator instead of against it. Yeah. The, the thistles are such an interesting one. In our experience, we had this one patch on the property where we had, I mean, it was a monoculture of thistles. And this would already, this had already been a couple of years into our process where we recognized that thistle was serving a purpose. And through the succession kind of trophic levels, they they more or less, you know, as an annual, uh, we don't really have many thistles anymore. And I kind of miss them mm. in retrospect. They're beautiful. Those big purple flowers are stunning. Bumblebees will come up to them. Oh, yeah. They're just the coolest. Yeah. Um, but there was this one area where these thistles just wouldn't um, abate. They wouldn't ameliorate. And so we we actually did some digging in there and it was an old battery mine mm. um, where we found these things all over the property where there would just be like 30 buried tractor batteries, wow. you know, like yeah. 20 years old and really pretty spots too, like under live oaks or in like these awesome meadows. Um, and so, yeah, those thistles, they were working that whole time. 
Yeah. They're like, oh, I got a lead battery. Yep. I can mineral accumulate this. Yes. And that's really what, I mean, pretty much all of the different biodynamic preparations that we'll talk about are all heavy mineral accumulating plants mm-hmm. that then we're using for other reasons to like re-inoculate the health and nourishment. And oftentimes you'll see those growing in old uh, burnt spots, yep. you know, where the soil has been completely sterilized. It's been kind of capped over like uh, fired um, clay pottery. And so you, the only thing that can get through that capped soil is the thistles because they just have these, you know, driller roots on them that can, you know, basically frack the soil to get to what nothing else can get through. Right. And, and like with a thistle, I think, you know, we've bought thistle tea before at mm-hmm. a natural grocery mm-hmm. store or tea bags and you make it at home and it's a detoxer. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you find that some of the other plant species out there that serve maybe a, a health role for us as consumers also serve a, a similar role to the earth? Absolutely. Or to the soil? Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, we'll get into that when we get into the biodynamic preparations. All of them are various different beneficial uh, healing herbs for humans in different ways. Um, and yeah, and, you know, anyone who's an herbalist will find some great similarity. I'm like, oh yeah, I use chamomile for calming and going to sleep and resting and relaxing. And in biodynamics, we'll use fermented chamomile flowers to put on a field to help it calm and rest and digest this fall stubble for the winter time so that it's ready to be available for springtime. Um, things like nettles, you know, nettles and thistles are similar, but different singing nettles are, you know, as nutritive as your sea vegetables, your kelps and your algaes and things like that. Um, but same thing. We just have this highly available, bioavailable nutrient source um, harnessed into a plant that now we can use for our various purposes. That's amazing. And a couple of times you've, you've touched on these natural systems moving towards higher complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, can you touch on the difference between maybe complexity and something that's complex, a system that's complex versus a system that's complicated? Yeah. So a system that's complicated might be um, like your computer. You know, we got parts and pieces from all over the world, incredible, interesting, heavy metals that allow for high conductivity. But if one component of that computer breaks, the whole thing is done. No matter how many moving components it has, the whole thing shuts down. So that's complicated versus complex, which is what nature is always moving towards. It has multiple redundancies. So if a if a thistle um, gets overgrazed or it's gone, there's another mineral accumulating plant right behind it. The mesquite, the silver leaf nightshade, the many other weeds that nobody tends to like, all of those are all serving the same function as moving the system from bare capped earth to a hyper complex savanna prairie ecosystem with deep roots, shallow roots, soil that's four feet deep, incredible trees, 400 years old, uh, 
in a prairie ecosystem, rich in beneficial virus, beneficial fungi, beneficial bacteria, and a myriad of hundreds of different species of living beings that are all every year taking in the imprint of the summer cycle, building that into their seed head. And next year, that seed is now more ready to grow in conditions exactly where it is. You know, the beauty of seed harvesting is each year your seed gets more ready to grow in that exact soil, that exact climate, that exact rainfall or drought or heat. And so each year that's, that system is becoming more complex, more resilient, more redundant. Um, and if you clear cut an acre of it, the rest of it is going to seep into that area and heal it as quickly as possible. Hmm. It's like the the phrase nature um, abhors a vacuum, right? Like always will come in and fill that space is mm -hmm. what you're talking about. Absolutely. And so as as a human with our relative simple minds, we're good at building complicated systems, but how can we play a part in a complex system that will truly never really be able to realize all the relationships and everything that's happening? Yeah, great question. Um, I think one of my favorite phrases from Buckminster Fuller is he, he said that humans are local information harvesters and synthesizers, and that's kind of our function in universe. Um, and so I think really it's looking at what we're trying to manage, our ho the hole that we're trying to manage, whether it's an eighth of an acre in our backyard or a thousand acres or more, and saying, you know, what am I doing and what is the, what is the land allowing? Uh, and so the, the whole kind of big picture of biodynamics is looking at the property as a whole and just as a human being as a whole, and it has organ systems and sensory systems that can kind of be self-sustaining. We want that land to basically be able to make all of the minerals um, and biological activities and sense and basically be a, be a living organism that all of the inputs ideally come from that land instead of constantly pulling in more inputs um, in importing more things to the land. Um, so I, I think kind of, a yeah, I think I, I'm, I might've just lost my, my, my train of thought, but I think that's kind of the question is, is just looking at how can we be a good steward sure. and, and what's, what's needed yep. to do that. I mean, it really wasn't that long ago when these ecosystems worked at really high levels on that kind of closed loop principle where mm -hmm. all the fertility, all the nutrient, all the cycles of nature were working within its own boundaries. And it's only been relatively recent um, since maybe the uh, advent of modern kind of industrial agriculture mm -hmm. that we've stripped away that model. And it's been more based on constantly importing these resources. Absolutely. And as soon as we put up fences and disallowed classic migratory paths of bison and and roving ruminants, we shifted all of those nutrient cycles. Um, so we've talked a little bit about these cycles mm -hmm. and I've heard you speak about inward and outward cycles and, and energies uh, within nature. 
Can you elaborate on that and maybe provide some examples? Yeah. You know, um, I think I, I didn't bring one little visual that I was planning on, but you know, here's, here's something that, that we can, we can look at if, if you're watching this, if you're, you know, listening, you know, what I just pulled out was, was, uh, a dodecahedral shape, which has all the nested platonic solids inside of it. And so this is really kind of how nature operates. It's constantly nesting more complexity inside of itself. So, you know, the rumor has it that eventually a long time ago, we were this, you know, blob of biomass living. And we noticed that, uh, that a mitochondria cell was floating around next to us. And we snatched it up and said, wow, this thing's just harvesting and making power. Let's go ahead and pull that in and it'll be part of us now. And now, you know, we have these incredible mitochondrial power factories inside of our cells. Um, and so we're constantly, you know, life is constantly incorporating newness into itself um, so that it can then express outwardly. But, you know, to what you asked about outward and inward, a plant is this constant outward inward process. Springtime hits, it grows up out of the soil, it moves outward and upward. Eventually it's going to put on a fruit that's going to then compress inward and make a seed. And that seed's going to drop off and the cycle of outward expression and then involution and compression is going to occur again to make a new seed. Um, same with humans, right? We we grow old enough to reproduce and our bodies are creating eggs and sperm, which is just a highly condensed version of everything that we are and everything that all the generations before have, us have been so that it can then express and expand into a whole nother thing that can reproduce and do the same thing. So everything on its own level is this outward expression followed by an inward expression, kind of this pumping, pulsing cycle of life. And when we can just acknowledge that that's the thing, we can work with it. And that's really what biodynamics uh, tries to do in particularly the morning and evening cycles of outward outward movement from energy from soil into sky in the early morning, um, and then an inward movement from energy from sky into soil in the evening. And then that broader cycle would be, you know, great growth and outward movement in the summer, fruit producing, harvesting, and then leaves dropping, everything moves underground, inward, saps move underground for the winter time. And so, you know, from the microcosmic to the macrocosmic, we have these inward, outward pulsing cycles that when we acknowledge, we can work with. So how, how, do, you, how do you work with that? Or what are some examples of how you might think about interacting with land or plants um, in rhythm with that natural cycle? Sure. So, you know, for the plant, uh, the question would be, what is the plant? Is it a root or a shoot? And where's the energy going to be at? Let's, let's look at the day cycle. In the morning, the energy is moving from earth up into the sky. And about noon, maybe one o'clock apex of the day, that energy is going to start moving back from sky down into earth again. So if you're going to harvest uh, a leaf, lettuce, kale, something that's a leafy or a, or a fruit bearing plant, it would be best to harvest those 
in morning before noon because all of the energy of that day is up in that part of the plant. And so if you harvest a fruit, when that energy is up in the fruit, you know, during the moon cycle, during the day cycle, then that fruit's going to last longer. It's going to have more shelf stability. It's going to taste better as opposed to harvesting a fruit um, when all the energy is in the root of the plant. You're just not going to get the, you know, as much juice to the squeeze, if you will. Um, and then vice versa, if you're going to harvest a beet or a carrot, you know, harvest those in the evening time when all the energy has come back from the from the sky, down into the earth, down into the actual body of the vegetable that you actually want. Um, and so, you know, that's your general, how, how you might just work with an already growing plant, but really all the, the different preps of biodynamics, if I can just get into those for a second, you know, it's a different, a lot of different materials that seem kind of weird as you uh, will, but really all of them are based on this idea of um, allowing a plant to sense better and encouraging outward growth during outward movement of energy and encouraging inward downward growth of roots um, during that inward downward cycle. So you would do different things during the morning time when there's an outward expression of energy than you would do in the evening time when there's an inward expression of energy. You know, just like humans, right? If you're a normal daytime human, you're going to probably drink a coffee first thing in the morning, maybe do a little activity to wake yourself up and then go to work. And then you're going to do something gentle, soothing, go to sleep. If you flip those things and you drink your chamomile tea in the morning, you're going to struggle all day long. And then you drink your coffee in the evening, you're going to sleep horribly. And so the whole system is off just because of the timing at which you put your input into it. And so to get into the kind of the, the two basic fundamental preparations of biodynamics is one is horn manure. Um, it's cow manure or bison manure packed into a horn, buried underground from fall equinox to spring equinox. And the idea is you are capturing all of those cosmic energies that are moving inward and downward. And when you then spray this, you would use it at a time that's an inward downward movement of energy. So that would be in the evening to encourage root growth and lateral growth of the plant. And on the other side, we would take that same horn and fill it with silica, which the horn silica is typically from quartz crystals that are smashed into a very fine powder and put into that cow horn and let sit from spring equinox to fall equinox to harvest and capture those summer energies, those outward and upward energies. So whenever we spray the silica preparation, we would do that in the morning because it's an outward upward expression and it interacts with light. Um, and so that's kind of the, the gist of how we can acknowledge these moving of forces and then we can do the appropriate activity at the appropriate time, looking at the biologically dynamic push-pull pumping system that we're in. 
I think um, there's just so much to unpack here. And one of, a couple of things that come to mind are some of the best grazers I know, and I think this is instinctive too, they tend to move their livestock first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just somehow recognize that maybe there's more nutrient density or maybe the animals recognize that and they get more excited. Mm-hmm. But to open that paddock in the morning is most favorable for the health of the animal versus in the evening where that energy is maybe in the leaf blades earlier in the day. So I think that's really special. And, and I also think, you know, as we're like learning these lessons and we're becoming more involved in this agricultural setting, as humans, I feel like our civilization really struggles. We, we really focus on that outward expansion of energy. Absolutely. I mean, all day long. Dude, all you day. painted the picture where it's like in the morning we get ready to go and then in the evening we wind down. But I think in the reality, most people's experiences freaking flooring it all day long. And, and completely focused externally. Yes. You know, and, and there's very little value, at, at least external value placed on, hey, you know what? You just sit still, go inward and just be content. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, what are you doing? You're missing meetings. You're not answering emails. Like there's no time for that. Right. Um, but there's such richness in that slowing down, being intentional. Um, whereas, yeah, right now I think it's a, a huge disease of our world of, you know, we're, we're creating mass mental health epidemics because everything is external material. Um, you know, there's a hundred different filters on Instagram to make you look prettier and thinner and sexier and whatever, um, stronger. Um, whereas there's very little value placed on, you know, who are you internally? How comfortable are you with yourself? Which fears have you processed through? Absolutely. My, my wife and I, we always get so frustrated at, um, how business is so focused on, on growth, like to start a business, you know, you have to. It's just kind of encoded in the genetics of that world where you have to show month over month growth, year over year growth. But it's like, where does where does that stop? Because that mm. cannot be limitless outward expansion. And so I think adopting some of these practices and recognizing that these cycles exist in nature, we are a part of nature. Therefore, we should practice some of these cycles ourselves. I think it's tremendous permission to allow that internal expansion that we lack. Absolutely. And this is a conversation that we have within our company. Um, You know, I work with Symbiosis Texas as as a regenerative land design firm. It's this question of what is our identity and is this appropriate for us? You know, what is our boundary and where do we define ourselves? Because nothing in nature grows forever, you know. Eventually, even if it's a parasite or a cancer, its host, its host dies and it's done. Um, and so as business owners, it's a real kind of philosophical question moving into you know 2024. How do we recreate what business looks like in mirror of the natural world? How do we define what we are and be that to its fullest potential? but move away from this infinite growth model that only benefits shareholders who are sitting somewhere often not related (laughs) to the company that's, you know, working away day to day. Um, because that model is what we're coming up against. That's pretty much causing our civilization to fail right now. 
I think it has to do with how do, how do we assign value or what do we value as a civilization or as a culture? And when you go back to the, the plant example and the cycles, it's like early in the morning, you know, you could probably speak this better than I have, but you probably looked at a plant under a refractometer or, mm-hmm. or some kind of uh, tool where you can measure nutrient density increasing. Mm-hmm. And so what if we measure food production by nutrient density versus just sheer um, volume? Volume, yeah, mass, mass right? Yeah. Uh, and so the same thing can happen with business and with how we live our lives. It's it's not about keeping up with the Jones materialism. It's mm-hmm. more what are we doing to build ourselves up and to support our families and our communities and our people and have that quality of life. Mm-hmm. I think that's just this huge opportunity for expansion as a species. Yeah. And, you know, going back to your grazers who move animals in the morning, there's so many dynamics that are occurring on top of the energy is in this, the leaf stock, you know, on layer on top of that morning dew and dew is something that you know, next time you see morning dew, just just sit there and take a minute and think about the journey that that dew's been on. Because each morning, and dew really moves like ocean tides. It goes up and down from soil to atmosphere multiple times a day, not just from nighttime to morning time, but it's a very mobile form of, of water. And as it goes up into the atmosphere, it's it's harvesting and collecting dust and ions from the sands of the Sahara and the fires of the rainforest and the smoke of British Columbia, you know, it's collecting information and material from around the planet that's floating around in these great oceans of air above us. And, you know, some of the biggest amounts of fresh water on planet earth are in the atmosphere. And so this dew is going up, mingling with that great ocean of fresh water and then coming back and depositing all that information on our grass. And so, you know, one great benefit is your animals are going to get vastly better hydrated with that type of highly structured water. And they're going to need less of your, you know, water tank water. Um, and they're getting all the energy in, in, in the seed head and in the grass. So there's a lot going on with just feeding your animals fresh grass off the ground in the morning versus evening time when there's no dew and all the energy's underground in the root structure. That's cool. I love my probably my favorite thing. You're just invoking this visceral reaction to <laughs> dew, but it's going out in the morning and taking my shoes off and grounding in that dew, mm-hmm. grass, soil matrix. And I think there's no higher um, connection to what's happening outside. And I feel sorry for the landscapes that are dehydrated and don't even have plant matter growing on them. That water cycle is broken to where that Mm -hmm. moisture just isn't present. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the nature of... Since you got on dew, I want to talk about the morning's chorus or dawn's chorus. Mm, mm-hmm. How do, I think that's like the most special time to be outside. So maybe someone who's not familiar with that, explain what the dawn's chorus is and what happens in the ecosystem, even coming down to the plant. Yes. Yeah, so the dawn chorus is a concept that, that I learned from the Wilderness Awareness School and, and John Young and the tracker Tom Brown Jr. And it's this notion that Around the planet Earth, there is always a preceding band just before sunrise and sunset 
of birdsong, of that morning chorus. You hear the treetop birds singing. You hear the ground birds making noises. Basically, the whole community is saying, hey, it's morning time. Everybody wake up. We made it. <laughs> you know, that owl tried to get us again last night, but we made it. Um, and so you'll... It's a wonderful time to be outside because, you know, if it's the morning time, you go out when it's perfectly silent, dark, can't hear anything and just find a spot to sit and be still. And you'll notice that this morning chorus starts to erupt. And then, you know, during sunrise, it's kind of at its cacophony. And one thing that's been absolutely proven is the frequencies of those birds emit a resonant frequency with the stomata, the breathing parts of plants to encourage those plants to open. So when you don't have birdsong, the plant is less informed about when it should open itself, when it should breathe out, when it should breathe in. And that birdsong is the pre-indicator that the sun is coming up that lets the plant know, okay, go ahead and open up, exchange gases, sun's about to hit you. You're going to get that perfect blend of, of wonderful, gentle wavelengths. And then you can close back down, prepare for this, the midday sun. And then in the evening, you're going to get that birdsong indicator again as you're going into that crepuscular evening time. You can take a deep breath again before you go into the cool, cold night maybe. Um, and it's this cycle that's always happening. And, you know, if, if we can tap into that bird song, it's a great indicator because when we hear that bird song at a different time of day, it's a bird alarm because typically, you know, you, when you get the full chorus of birds, it's only at those dusk and dawn times. If you get the full chorus of birds in the midday, you sh something should go off in the back of your mind that's like, what's going on? Usually I only hear that at dusk and dawn and it might be a rattlesnake in the grass. It might be, you know, a predator, a, a coyote moving through the forest. Um, in my own experience, you know, twice, once it indicated a mountain lion behind me and another time it indicated uh, Cape Buffalo in the forest just off to my left that had I not acknowledged the bird song, I would have walked right into him. I was walking through the forest in Kenya and see a handful of birds move from left to the right. It's midday, hear bird chorus kick off. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> that's not normal. And I'm, and I'm in a very foreign place than my normal environment. So whichever direction those birds are going, I'm going to go also because they're moving away from something. Funny. So I moved as quickly as I could away from whatever they were moving towards, got out of the forest. And then sure enough, two minutes later, here come two Cape Buffalo that luckily I, I was far enough away. <laughs> so the board, bird chorus is just an incredible indicator for a lot of different things. Yeah. The, as a, as a hunter, you know, you also, um, sometimes when you're walking stock and you're on the ground and you're coming close to some deer and the second you hear a bird call in the middle of the day, your, your cover is blown. It's bye Done. bye. Go by the home. time you hear that, you're just like, yep. shit, I got no chance yep. before the deer even knows the deer will pick up on that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, they're the great lighthouse of the forest. <laughs> right. You know, predators coming squirrels. your way or you as the predator moving their way. Yep, both way. Um, you know, it's just so cool because when when I hear you talk about the bird's course and the interconnectedness of 
just one species. And there's like billions of relationships like this that are happening. And we're only going to be able to recognize a very small fraction of a percent of all of this. Bird's course is a good example. But in my mind, it kind of shifts the whole like, what am I doing? What is the purpose? How do I restore, heal, bring land back to a higher level of health and resilience? And to me, it's almost not as much about like these cycles of nature, these soil health principles, but it's about how do I have more energy? How do I bring more energy onto my property at any given point in time? Because those relationships the symbiotic and even the competitive relationships all complement each other and lift up that system. So if you're a farmer and a rancher and you're like, do a bird count and you have three or four species of birds, that sucks. Mm-hmm. Well, what if you have, what if, what if you manage to increase your bird population to 200 different species? And then all these tangential interconnected relationships are restored and the whole system elevates in that energy capacity to iterate and to be more complex. Absolutely. I think yeah, creating more complexity is kind of our role as a steward, you know, creating those shelter belts and those those areas that we don't touch or we don't go to and we just leave to the wild species and energies of the land. Um, and we just let them know that, hey, we're not going to meddle with this particular area. That's just that's just yours. You just be there. You can come and, you know, join the rest of the property as well. Uh, but I think what you're mentioning is really what I got a lot out of biodynamics because it seeks to increase the the sense perceivability of plants. Uh, as, as Steiner mentioned, a plant is like a human that's been turned upside down and buried in the in the ground up to his belly button. And so a plant's sense organs, its nervous system are underground, you know, like your brain and your nervous system. It's, it's sensing, it's connecting with other fungi and bacteria and tree roots. And the whole thing is communicating underground. And then above ground is its reproductive parts. Um, it's fruits and it's seeds, female and male, uh, it's, it's pollens, it's anthers and stamens. Um, and so it's kind of the reciprocal of a human just upside down. And so with biodynamics, the idea is how do you create a better sensing plant that can reach out and receive from the natural environment what it needs since they can't just pick up and go to the refrigerator like we can. Um, They need to be able to sense, perceive as best as possible um, so that they can arrive to their fullest potential. And that's really kind of the idea of all the different preparations are just to encourage different parts of the plant to be able to sense better, to be able to digest better, to be able to thicken their skin and prepare for the heat better. Um, And all of it is looking at preparing the plant for what's to come as opposed to waiting for the plant to look bad and then reactively try to treat something in kind of a a panic emergency. Yes. Okay. So let's, we're going to get into uh, the biodynamic preparations. But before we do that, just recap, mm-hmm. we'll try to do it simple so people can wrap their head around what we're talking okay. about. But like some really key principles of biodynamic that we want people to take away I, from you. I got one, the earth, the farm, the ranch, the land is its own living organism. Mm-hmm. It is an entity. Uh, and so to perceive it that way, you can work with it differently. You have a different relationship. Number two, I would I would go on this idea that the interconnectedness of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the cosmos, we take into consideration all that light energy that's coming in and the cycles 
within that. Um, what am I missing or anything before we jump into the biodynamic preps? Cause I feel like the preps are like this huge delineation line, how this is different from organic or regenerative. This is very unique to biodynamics. And, you know, I think the only other thing that I would add is that, you know, between material life growing, there is this spirit that flows through all things. And that's really what we're trying to encourage more of to allow more of that spirit, which you can give whichever name is appropriate for your belief structure. Um, but that's what we're trying to bring into our system more. We're not just looking at material growth and weight and volume. We're looking at what's the vitality and the spirit. You know, when you, when you look at many plants during the use of biodynamics, um, you'll notice that they, they're not just two-dimensional flat leaves. You know, the things that we typically pick up in the grocery store are two-dimensional flat greens. But when it's growing and when you're using biodynamics, you'll notice that the, each vein inflates like a hot air balloon. And so now your, your plant is a full three-dimensional kaleidoscope fractal of fullness. It's bulging to its fullest boundary condition. It can't fit any more in three-dimensionally. And the veins will almost glow like an iridescent if you're looking at it in kind of a foggy day or an evening. And the amount of energy coming off of that plant is it's palpable. Like you'll be walking along and it'll you'll catch it out of your corner of your eye and you're like, whoa, that that is what kale is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. I did not realize it until now. Um, but that's really what we're trying to do. It's more than just the weight of a green plant. It's, you know, the quality, the tangibility, the vitality of the living life force moving in those plants that can then transfer into people and children and nutrition and health. Yes. Uh, that's such a good add on. And I do recall now Steiner really reflecting on what he kind of saw as a warning sign where humans were becoming diminished or starting to lack a spiritual nature, a spiritual connection. And that lack of spiritualness was that void or that vacuum that mm -hmm. was being created was one of the driving forces for our seemingly obsession with consumerism, with consumption, with material possessions. Mm -hmm. It's trying to fill that spiritual void with something else. Yeah. And so the way to return back to that spiritual fullness and that satiation is through food that also contains that same energy, mm -hmm. which makes tons of sense to me. Yeah. Okay. So let's dive into the biodynamic preparations. I know you kind of touched on a couple of them, but can you sure. maybe just run through the lineup and uh, explain how they're used and maybe some other really interesting parts? Sure. Uh, I think I'll just start with the, I'll start at the end and just say, you know, for folks who this is just a lot of complex stuff that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, the there, there are two organizations. There's the Josephine Porter Institute, which you can just purchase field preps from. They make them. They do all the things at the right times. Incredible people doing good work. And then there's the biodynamicsource.com. And they're doing the same thing, harvesting the most ethically um, harvested plants at the appropriate times and putting them together for you. And 
So before we get into all the specifics, you know, if you just got one bag of stuff to put on your earth, get the Pfeiffer Biodynamic Field and Garden Spray, and it has all of the preparations in it. You just put it in water and you mix it for an hour and then you put it out. Or if you don't have an hour to mix, go to a biodynamic source and get their, um, um, what is it? Buffalo soil activator. And it has all the biodynamic preps in it. You mix it for one minute and put it out. And it's just inoculates your system with all those beneficial things. Those beneficial things are, <laughs> um, you know, so it, it starts with the horn manure, which we mentioned. So it's a, a cow manure or a bison manure packed into a cow horn. And all of these have a, a frequency, a, a, vib a vibratory effect. And that's really what we're working with. But they also have a material beneficial bacteria material effect too. So, you know, when we're putting manure in a horn, putting it underground, it's kind of a strange thing to do, but really what we're doing is creating a microclimate for a specific biology to exist. And so you have horn underground against uh, manure and horn is the same material as your fingernails. Um, it's high in chitin and it's a very appropriate medium for growing actinomyces fungi. And so in the end, after you take that out, your manure is no longer this black um, cone of manure, but it's covered in white actinomyces fungi. And so on one side, it's like, well, wow, you know, if I were to purchase an actinomyces inoculant, that could be relatively expensive. But here I can just make it myself in my backyard underground with a little bit of time. Um, but also there's that frequency of it's not only just beneficial fungi, but it also encapsulates this downward, outward lateral movement of roots to encourage things to grow down and outward. So then our next part, oh, before we, oh, yeah, yeah. I just have to tell you my experience. Yes, please. Because this is just too trippy. Um, <laughs> I came in this with an open mind, but also some healthy skepticism. And uh, I remember when I buried my horn, I was like texting. I was like, Adam, like, tell me, like, how do I do this? Where do I bury this? You know, like, it doesn't really matter. Just find some spot you'll remember. The worst thing yeah. that can happen is you forget <laughs> where you buried your horn. I was like, shit, that'll probably happen six months later. But I, um, I buried it in like the crappiest, most degraded, compacted, mm -hmm. hardened, low organic matter soil because it was convenient. It was right next to my house and I mm -hmm. could remember where it was and it wouldn't get like grazed or anything. And uh, when I unearthed it, it had transformed. Every it, it was not the same material that it began. And the fact that somehow that actinomycetes inoculated it is still beyond my comprehension because like I said, there was nothing happening in that soil. Um, and so that, the, and, and the actual uh, preparation that came out of the horn too, it was no longer manure. Mm -hmm. it, it was actually sweet smelling. I mean, it was very earthy. It, mm -hmm. it felt good to hold. It felt very clean and pure. Mm -hmm. um, and it just felt very mineral rich and strong, like, like humus or something. Yeah. And that's, I would say that's one of the biggest differences in biodynamics is they really discourage the use of fresh, uh, fresh manure. Uh, fresh manure is very, uh, water soluble and it kind of force feeds a plant. Uh, whereas something like you just 
described is so complex and digested and stable uh, that it's a much stronger, more complete nourishment for a plant instead of like scooping up manure lagoons and spraying that on a plant. It's a completely different situation. Absolutely. Um, sorry to interrupt you. No, yeah, that's okay. But, but way more concentrated. So you don't need it. Like when you spread it, the dilution is, you know, you only need a little bit, it goes a long way. That was, that was really the, probably the first thing that got me into biodynamics was my context was we had a well that would only produce 200 gallons of water and then it would, it would stop and you'd have to wait two hours for it to restart again. Um, so I didn't have much water and I had a lot of land. My folks had over a hundred acres to start playing with. And uh, when I reached out to um, the various different agriculture universities, all of their solutions were by X many tons of product per acre and irrigate. And so for me, I was like, man, I don't have much money and I don't have very good water. And here comes biodynamics that says, all you need is a gram of this material for five acres, you know, something that fits in the palm of your hand. And by the way, if you use a homeopathic dilution of that, mix that into water for an hour and then take, you know, one liter of that, dilute it by 10, do that 10 times. And you have such a minute amount of that material in, you're really just dealing with a pattern, a blueprint of what it once was. And so for me, just from a logical cost-effective way, I was like, Hey, if I can put less material on my property with the very limited amount of water that I have, and it does something better than a lot of material, well, sign me up. I'll drink that Kool-Aid all day long. Yes. It's a great, uh, a great selling point. And I, you've even, I've heard you say that, um, if it's, uh, if it seems too maybe intimidating to spread it on your property too, if you have livestock, you can uh, put it in their water trough, right? Yeah. You can just, you can just put the preps right into, let's say a cheese cleat cheesecloth bag and put it in their water source. And again, these, you know, they're actual materials, but the materials are holding a frequency. And that's really what we're putting out on land or putting through an animal. We're increasing the digestive frequencies and the sensing frequencies and the restful frequencies so that everything is doing better. And really, if you have livestock feeding them like a 20 choice mineral plus biodynamics in their water, you're just allowing your animal to do all the work for you. Insane. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I mean, putting things through animals and that's, that's like a do nothing farmer situation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Cool. All you got to move them is in the morning. Yeah. When you said that, it it blew my mind. It's like, what, how did I never (laughs) <laughs> understand. And then I started thinking about, well, what if I give my bison, what if I can trick them into eating deep-rooted perennial grass seeds and forbs? Absolutely. Have we, them spread those too. We, we, uh, we had a little, you know, we had a, a property owner's cattle get into all of our uh, Native American seed. <laughs> oh, no. And so it was like, the problem is the solution on one side. It was like, oh no, they ate, you know, 20 pounds or maybe it was more seed and sure enough, when you followed them around the next couple of weeks, those cow patties were so rich in native perennials, much more than the seed drill that we'd put out and all the effort and diesel that we'd put into them, just feed them to the animals and they took care of the rest. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Let's get back. That's all right. Uh, so that was the horn manure. Horn manure is a great earthly, rich, feminine 
growth downward lateral force. The silica preparation is that uh, quartz crystal ground into a fine dust, buried in the horn, and it's doing two different things. You know, one, silica is very difficult to find in a bioavailable form. And so, again, you're putting that silica underground and letting the natural fungi, bacteria, ecosystem work on it. You know, basically like a baby bird, you know, mama bird is pre-digesting all that very fine silica so that when you finally pull it out, it's more available to a plant. Also, silica holds information. All of the technology that surrounds us, our Silicon Valley, making chips, silicon is an incredible conduit for just holding information and moving light. And so how we can use it is when we spray this in the morning, it's like spraying out a billion small prisms. And so now instead of one light source, the sun, hitting one aspect of a plant, since you're spraying the silica up in the air, that plant is getting light refracted and reflected from a billion different tiny, tiny prisms from all aspects around it, surround it, above it, below it. And it's a very different quality of light. It's very soothing and complex light that it's getting. Um, and so that, that's kind of our silica prep. It works with light um, and encourages upward um, vertical growth. And so typically if you have, let's say, corn or wheat that's very short and it just won't get to that height, then it's usually deficient in silica because silica really grows the cell walls of a plant so that it can grow taller and stronger. Um, I'll, I'll jump to our other silica prep, um, which is horsetail. So you may have seen horsetail in your bog areas or your riparian zones down by the river. It's this uh, very segmented plant. It's very coarse. It's also very high in silica. And so, you know, one, the horn silica gets buried underground for summertime. And this, this is a plant silica. So it gets boiled and then poured into a bucket for seven to 14 days to ferment. And then through that boiling activity and then followed by the fermentation, it liberates that silica into a more usable, available form. And then we would just take that and spray it in the air in the morning as well to try to create those stronger cell walls and subtler interaction with light. Yeah. The name of the game to me, like I already said, is, is harvesting energy, getting more energy on your property, mm -hmm. light energy, energy for the source of communication and passing information. So this, uh, this gets me excited. This is like the idea of, man, I wish I could have a billion birds on my property for a day. What yeah. would that do for the plants? Mm -hmm. Here you putting a billion crystals in the air yeah. for a day. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, if you're looking for a very tangible, rapid way to bring in silica to your property and you're working on large scale, uh, basalt dust is kind of your next quickest, fastest remineralization effect. Um, we use uh, the Canipa, Texas mine in um, just outside of Gonzales, Texas, and we just get their basalt screenings. And so for $12 a ton, you can get, you know, typically 
one semi will carry 25 tons of basalt dust, and then we'll just mix that in one scoop of basalt, one scoop of compost, and then go kind of broad scale, distribute that on the highest part of the property, and then just let gravity and water distribute it the rest of the way. Um, but that's a real quick way to remineralize and get a high available source of silica on awesome. the property as well. Good idea. So moving on to the, the next preparation. So each of the preparations moving forward are a plant material packed inside of an animal material. And Steiner would look at which plants had similar qualities as which animals and specifically which animal organs. Um, because all of these come back to we're trying to create a microclimate for beneficial bacteria and life to form. And... So if if you weren't looking at it like that, it might sound a little strange. You know, here with um, the Yarrow preparation, the 502 preparation, um, it's Yarrow flowers packed into a buck's bladder. A buck is a deer, you know, a male deer. And so it looks at Yarrow as a plant that branches almost infinitely. You know, its, it's Latin name is Achille millifolium because it has like a million different foliages. Uh, it, and it's, it, uh, it's packed into the buck's bladder because a buck is kind of associated with, whereas, um, whereas manure is very associated with gravity, Cattle and bison are very heavy. Well, cattle more so. They're very heavy and gravity-based. A deer is very flighty. It's almost more associated with levity than gravity. If you ever watch it jump, you know, it just levitates right over that eight-foot fence, and it doesn't look like it struggled. You never hear it grunt. Um, and so you take yarrow flowers and you pack it into a buck's bladder, and you put that above ground for six months and then bury it underground for six months. And in the end, you get something that's, um, you know, according to our little biodynamic preparation list, um, it interacts with the Venus forces and it has strong radiating powers. It refreshes and quickens the soil by harnessing more distant cosmic substances that come into the earth in homeopathic quantities. But on a material level, if you measure the beneficial and um, quantity of bacterias in just yarrow flowers and in just the inside of a buck's bladder before being combined, and then after this, the amount of beneficial bacterias increases by a fold of a thousand. So you're just creating another life form, sure. a beneficial inoculant that allows the plants to sense and get what they need and, and use what they got better. Very cool. The sum of the whole is greater than the parts. Exactly. So then we move into the chamomile preparation, biodynamic preparation 503. And as I mentioned earlier, chamomile is a very soothing, you know, kind of a, your nightcap, calm, calm you down. It's associated with calcium and magnesium. And so for uh, land, it helps it digest. It helps it rest. So it'd be a, an appropriate thing to put on in the in the fall time to help the stubble digest and become, you know, stable nutrients again for springtime. Then we move into the biodynamic 504, which is stinging nettle. And stinging nettle, which is different than thistle, but stinging nettle is 
generally um, grown next to riparian areas, wet spots, boggy areas. Would bull nettle be a stinging nettle or is that different? It's... Uh, different for these purposes, okay. you know, uh, Siner specifically said the Urtica dio uh, dioica, which is a particular stinging nettle. But I think those, there's there's opportunity for experimentation. I think using a bull nettle and burying it underground for a year, pulling it out, doing a little test trial of our local plants is kind of that next step. And like, how do we take these principles and then apply them to our local context and see if maybe it's just as good. Right. Um, so stinging nettle, it, we use that kind of just, well, one, it's just incredibly nutritive. Uh, it's got an incredible array of, of bioavailable nutrition, kind of like kelp. If you've ever used kelp sprays on plants, it does a, a great amount of good for it. But also it has formic acid, which is found in fire ants. And so how we might use this is just before the summer heat hits its apex, we could go ahead and spray on a stinging nettle preparation onto the plants. And for the plant, it's getting this formic acid on it. And it's kind of a, a reminder of like, hey guys, uh, summer is just around the corner and we're going to have hotter days. So here's a little heat for you you know, adapt. Sure. And so give it two weeks to kind of thicken its cuticle, strengthen its stem, get ready for the the big summer sun. Yeah. Two weeks later, you get those hundred degree days and your plants just thrive right through it instead of wilt for the next two weeks until they kind of barely survive it. Nice. And so that's where all these are, you know, looking at the cycles, what's about to happen in the plant's life and how can we prepare it for what it's about to go through. Could you use that for like an early frost too? Uh, like a maybe early season frost to just kind of help a plant push through it? Absolutely. The the best things for for frosts would be the stinging nettle, kelp, just a liquid kelp, uh, just has tons of available enzymes to help plants get through any of that. And the um, the valerian preparation, which I'll talk about here in just a second. Um, you know, and I'll just jump ahead. Valerian, as you mentioned with uh, human nutrition, some of the, the listeners and watchers might be aware of the valerian root. And valerian root's found for a sleep aid. It'll really put you to sleep. Um, but the flower has the complete opposite quality. So the flower is very exciting. And so the valerian prep is the flower harvested, fermented into a juice and sprayed. And so it excites everything. It's kind of like if, if you and some friends were around a campfire on a freezing night and someone broke out the, the whiskey, you know, they didn't necessarily warm you up physically, but they excited you enough that you didn't really care that it was cold and you made it through a, a good night. So by spraying out that valerian juice on plants just before a freeze excites the system so much that it can get through those a little bit easier. Cool. And so with a with a kelp, stinging nettle and a valerian, that's a great pre-freeze, pre-frost kind of get everybody through the, the nice. struggle. Yeah, cool. Keep the growing season going. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot in Texas, we get these peach trees that will flower in February. And then we get that next hard freeze after the flowering. And then you you lost that. So that mm -hmm. would be a great opportunity for good that. Idea. Good idea. Yeah. Uh, the next prep is the oak bark preparation. So oak 
An oak tree is a very strong calcium accumulator. One of the reasons why the wood is so heavy, you know, anyone who's had a like a cedar fire versus an oak fire, you know, there's a lot of captured solar energy in that oak wood and it's very durable and lasts a long time. So oak bark is very high in calcium. We pack that oak bark into an animal skull, like a cow or a pig skull, and bury it into a boggy area, something that's very wet and very anaerobic. And in those anaerobic environments, you have very aggressive mineralizing bacterias. The things that smell like sulfur and smell like methane, they're really aggressively um, breaking apart bonds and making them available. So after leaving this underground in a wet area for a year, you pull it out and your inoculant is something that is very good at breaking apart calcium bonds and making things available, um, but also protecting against molds and rots um, because Calcium is kind of your, your king of nutrients and you need it in order for anything else to move. So if you have any fungal issues or rusts, you know, using the oak bark on that is a, is a really good option for just general immune support and health. Nice. And then lastly, the dandelion prep, um, you know, dandelion root, some people drink it as a nutritive uh, because it's very mineral rich and so dandelions have really deep tap roots that pull up minerals from the deep soils. And so this particular preparation helps roots pull up and, and communicate minerals from the deep soils up to the plant material. Um, and so if you're a plant and you got roots and you got a top and you're photosynthesizing, but you get a little inoculated so that your roots are being better roots then you know, everybody wins. Um, and so... Dandelion is also a really good liver tonic. Um, it clears out your liver. Um, and so it helps the land move and use and kind of purge anything that's no longer needed, like old car batteries. Yep. Um, but basically, it's kind of this like liver cleansing quality of we're going to take in toxins and we're going to move toxins and we're not going to allow those things to just, you know, stagnate and accumulate and become detrimental. And so each of these different preps are supporting a different quality of, of the plant. And so generally all these preps are either put into a compost pile and then we use that compost that's inoculated or they're put into the Pfeiffer field spray or that uh, biodynamic bison soil activator. Yep. And so most people, unless they're at a high level of biodynamics, aren't using the individual preps. Mm -hmm. um, they're just using the mixed sprays. And, you know, if you were to do nothing else, you know, spray the field and garden spray on the on the roots, on the soil, on the stalk of the plants. And then the next morning, spray your silica spray in the air. And then poof, you're doing biodynamics. You you did it. You yeah. resensitized your land. You probably resensitized yourself a little bit because you're now inoculated with these interesting <laughs> <Good point>. things. <laughs> uh, and you might, you know, notice qualities in your life shift a little bit. Yeah. I like the sound of that. Um, so it can be really intimidating to make this stuff. You got to be rather hardcore to go out there and harvest a, a buck and dry out the bladder and then harvest yarrow, dehydrate it, put it in there, let it sit for so long. 
Can you reiterate that? Don't be intimidating. Don't, don't let, uh, perfection get in the way of progress. Where can you get this stuff? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I myself have made the horn silica, the horn manure, and actually the yarrow and the oak and the oak. Um, but it is a, it is a labor of love and the Josephine Porter Institute every year has a prep making class. If you feel so inspired, you can just join them for it. Um, or you can just purchase it from their website, support good people doing good stuff, or that biodynamic source website. You know, great motivated elders of our community of how do we grow better foods, acknowledging that most people just need to purchase a thing for 30 bucks that shows up, throw it in a bucket of water, stir it as long as you feel compelled to. Generally, anything over an hour is going to have diminishing returns. But if you can stir that for 30 minutes to an hour. One, it's just a very lovely meditative thing to do that is very new for most of us, just being still and being with a bucket of water for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> I found it to be very enjoyable. <laughs> uh, as someone who has a busy body and hard time slowing down to have a function for an hour in one place was was really enjoyable. But yeah, just just buy it, use it, get it out. Don't think about any of this other stuff unless you feel compelled. And then you're doing it. You don't have to worry about where anything is in the cosmos. You just bought a $30 thing and it's on your land and now you're doing it. Very cool. Um, and if you want to start with one BD 500, the horn manure, just reach out, email some, some random rancher. There you go. And ask for yeah, 30 you... gallons of poop. <laughs> and who knows what relationship and series of life events will unfold from there. Possibly a good one. Exactly. Hopefully. Um, okay. So now we're talking about preparations. Can we talk about timing, some kind of biodynamic calendar sure. almanac uh, that can help us make decisions on when it's appropriate? Absolutely. So I'll mention the last preparation that's very timing specific, uh, which is the Three Kings preparation. It's to be done from 11.30 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. on New Year's Eve uh, in America. So, you know, December 31st, January 1st, um, and then sprayed around the property edge of your property as kind of a, a, a spiritual boundary, if you will. Um, and I've, I've really enjoyed doing that preparation. Um, you know, for one, it's made many of conversation starters at New Year's Eve parties. <laughs> uh, you know, one, you kind of think about your, your consumption of substances during that time, um, and, you know, you go off and you're grinding these three materials in a, uh, in a mortar and pestle for an hour. And then a couple of days later, you mix it in with warm water and spray it around your property. But it really brings a lot of great conversations into like, what's going on here? Why are you doing this? Yes. Um, and I've always been interested in kind of the mythology and stories around those gold frankincense and myrrh. You know, why of all things did... Did the the three wise men bring those? Uh, but I've definitely found that to be a, a beautiful addition to uh, myself and to the property, um, and really in, increase intuition, if if you will. Um, and so, getting into the timing of things, Steiner mentioned that that specific time of winter is when the most rich spiritual energies are coming into earth from the greater cosmos. 
Because we have these earth energies moving from earth outward to the atmosphere and beyond. And then we have everything else moving inward towards the earth, which that everything else is a lot. You know? mm -hmm. uh, and so... The the almanac, um, the Maria Thune Biodynamic Almanac, specifically the North American version, uh, is just a great resource because you don't have to really get embedded into what's going on in the world. You can literally just go to the back page, pull out this wonderful little document, and... Here you flip to your month, and here we are, November, what is it, November 10th, and it's a root day. So roots are brown, flowers are yellow, leaves are blue, and fruits are red. So generally, you know, how this came to being is a really incredible feat of, of a of a devout scientist, uh, Maria Thune. And she grew up in a farming community and she'd hear the old timers talk about this constellation or this moon cycles, why we do this seeding or that harvesting. And so she took it upon herself to see if there was any substance to that. And so for 30 years, she planted radishes and beets and every single 28 days, she would harvest that radish and beet, and she would clean it methodically, and she would weigh all the different parts of the plant. And after doing that for a full year, she then took the United States Naval Star Charts, which are exactly where the moon and the celestial bodies are, you know, in case of a electromagnetic pulse that shut down our satellites and our communication systems, you know, big battleships need to know how to get back to harbor. And so it's a very specific location of where these celestial bodies are. And then she correlated them, which is just a vast amount of work and devotion. And she found that during certain configurations of the celestial bodies, leaves would grow better. And others, roots would grow better. In others, flowers would express best. And in others, fruits would grow best. And you can do this yourself. You know, the, the first experiment that I would encourage doing is get, get the calendar um, and then plant radishes and beets on a, beet, on a root day and plant, plant those exact same seeds on a shoot day. And what I've found every single time is the ones planted on a shoot day will just provide copious amounts of greens. You know, you're just harvesting beet greens for steaming and eating all day long. And then when you finally get to picking the root... And obviously, you know, if you're going to do a test, don't be harvesting all of your greens and then suspect that the beet is so small. Uh, have your little test plot that you're not interfering with. But every time we notice that you'll get tons of shoots, but the root is this tiny little bean at the end of it all. You're like, wow, how did that, how did that tiny root make all those greens? And on vice versa, you plant it on a root day. And the little shrubby, spindly shoots that come out of it, you're like, oh, man, that, that is struggling. That's not doing very well at all. And then when you finally kind of pick it out of empathy, like, oh, let me just end this thing's life, you pick it up and here's a softball root of a, of a beet or a radish on there. Um, and so it really, it really makes a big difference. I noticed that whenever we acknowledge this calendar and plant accordingly to it, 
You know, and realistically, everyone just has generally like a planting week. You know, you got your seeds and you got your plant and everything's ready. And so how I would do this is, you know, Sunday to Monday are fruit days and Tuesday, Wednesday are root days, Thursday, Friday flowers and Saturday through Monday is leaf. So just separate out your seed mixes, do a little bit of planting each of those days instead of trying to do it all in one day. And then the whole system just thrives better because it's planted on the appropriate time for that, given the context for greater growth. And even though every time I do this, it it blows my mind that, you know, we're not only just planting with soil health principles and good quality seed that we're acknowledging this greater celestial context that we're floating through at infinite speeds. <laughs> yes. I love that. Um, we're going to have to launch this podcast on a fruiting day. So I'll look at the calendar and reference that, okay. but I just adored the, the ancient wisdom that Maria Thune just devoted her time and resources into. And it's just like, we take this for granted so much. You have like these celestial entities, these stars, these constellations that are hundreds of thousands of light years away. And mm -hmm. light is like always moving. It's like limitless. It never stops moving. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're like, we don't have, pre you just look up and you're like, yeah, cool. There's like Orion's belt. There's the big mm -hmm. differ. But like the plants, they're actually utilizing, they're harnessing the energy that's coming through hundreds of thousands of years of traveling through space. And when you think about the dewdrop coming up into the upper atmosphere and coming back down and carrying all that information back to the soil, mm -hmm. I feel like the same thing is happening to that light energy that's coming in. Yeah. They're just feeding off all that information in in variety of different ways. And as long as they have the ability to know what to do with it um, and sensible enough, you know, because you kind of think about each of these plants as like a little, a little child that if you, if it, if it's loved and encouraged, then it continues to like seek outward and play and express itself. And if that comes upon trauma or devastation in some variety of ways, it shuts down and no longer has the ability to access that full potential. And so that's what we're trying to do is allow our, our plants and our people to feel fully expressed and to express their full potential and to work, work with us. So if someone is invest, get some of the preparations, also invest in the calendar, but they're just overanalyzing like, oh, which date should I do it on. They could almost have like a, a lack of action based on too much processing. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, in your mind, this is, there are two separate things. You can use them together, but should you, is it okay to just put the freaking preparations put out, them out versus keep them in your closet? Daytime, nighttime, winter, summer, just get it out. It's always going to be better than like perfectly working with the celestial bodies. Yeah. You know, when I started, uh, the only time that I had available was middle of July, summer drought, Texas, 104 degree days. <laughs> so I was like, well, I'm not going to do it during the daytime because I'll have heat stroke. So I'm just going to mix this Pfeiffer Field and Garden in a 55 gallon bucket during night just to keep my own self and sanity intact. And so stirred that bucket for an hour, put it in a small little spray rig, sprayed it around our property. Um, and by morning, the next morning, there was an increase in precipitation um, and 
strangely enough, a giant black spinning cloud above our barn where I'd been stirring these preps for the, for three hours throughout the nighttime. And so that was one of the first things that I was like, you know what? I don't understand a lot about this world, but there is a black cloud swirling above the barn that I stirred these materials in for three hours last night. So there's something to this, you know, and the fascinating thing was, you know, when you're stirring material in a 55 gallon bucket, this was the very first experience that I had. So I thought, well, if you're going to stir a little bit, stirring a lot is better. <laughs> so instead of one five gallon bucket, let's stir three 55 gallon yeah, those buckets. Those are big buckets for reference. So, you know, my body felt like it had been hit by a train <laughs> the next day. But, oh man, I bet you look like a witch at night doing <laughs> absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah, I figured out that if you suspend the the stirring stick, it mm. takes some of the effort off of your, <laughs> your muscles. But yeah, very witchy. Uh-huh. But the next morning after creating this downward vortices for three hours, um, what I looked up and experienced was a funnel cloud above our barn that was an upward vortices. And it was kind of this acknowledgement of the universe of like, yep, as above, so below, you create a downward vortex, nature will mirror it with an upward vortices. Um, and small intentional things can have a large, broader impact. And so that really encouraged me to just keep going. That's cool. That's an uh, experience that is so profound and moving, but is also not unique to you doing this. It happened to me. Um, it happens to multiple people that dip their toe into this world. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like the gateway to recognizing that there's something greater that we can be a part of. And I think one really exciting thing is that as you alluded to, you can kind of change what's happening atmospherically. You can alter weather patterns. Um, and I think that's a great segue for the Agnihotra, which sure. you're a big uh, proponent of. You've introduced me to it. And um, so I'll just mention before we go into there, just to mention the, um, the atmospheric change potential of the sequential spraying system. So we've talked about all the different preps, but Hugh Lovell, the writer of Quantum Agriculture, um, who's since passed, a great biodynamic elder, um, he really got famous traveling around Australia making it rain from exactly what we've just discussed. So, you know, first thing, they'd mix the biodynamic corn manure and spray first thing in the morning. You have an outward, upward expression of a prep during an outward expression energetically of the earth. And then in the evening, he'd spray the biodynamic horn manure, downward, inward expression of the preparation during a downward, inward expression of the energetic cycle of the day. The very next morning, you would have prepared your horsetail, boil it, ferment it, and you'd spray that in the morning. So now you have another silica preparation outward during an outward energetic time. And then the next evening, you'd spray the biodynamic uh, barrel compost, which is basically just horn manure mixed with basalt and eggshells, which was a creation of Maria Thunes. And so you're getting another downward inward expression during a downward energetic cycle. And then finally, on the third day, you spray honey mixed in water, which interacts with light. Um, and then in the evening, you mix milk mixed with water. And so you're acknowledging, kind of tipping your hat to the daily energetic inward outward pulsing cycle and using these preparations at the appropriate time to pump complexity that's appropriate to that lever that's occurring 
And every time I've ever done it, it always rains on that third day, no matter if it's middle of summer, not an ounce of precipitation in, you know, the two week forecast or not. It always precipitates. It might be a little drizzle. It might be a fog bank. Um, and sometimes it's full rain clouds. Um, so, you know, biodynamics was the first time that I ever experienced a, a form of farming that acknowledges the atmosphere and that we can change the quality of the atmosphere which is what the plant is consuming. You know, the plant is opening up its leaf parts and it's consuming, it's breathing in the the atmosphere. And that is then turning into mobile carbon and polysaccharides that are injected into the soil. And so by changing the atmosphere, you can impact the soil and the plant beneficially. The only other place that I found that working with atmosphere was in the Indian of India, um, tradition of Agnihotra. And they refer to it as Homa farming, uh, which is basically biodynamics plus Agnihotra. And Agnihotra, if you go on awakeninnerfire.com or .org, uh, my dear friend uh, Gautam Bodhipudi has put together a whole series of um, training tabs and how to do this and what it is and where to purchase the materials. But basically what it is, is it's an ancient Vedic tradition um, from some of the oldest living texts that we know of, of you take a copper pyramid of a very specific proportion and you burn uh, cow manure, dried cow manure soaked in ghee at the exact second of sunrise and sunset. And at that second of sunrise and sunset, you add a small amount of rice covered in ghee and you say a Sanskrit mantra. So you have a lot of kind of alchemical energies occurring at that very second of sunrise and sunset, you have a prisming effect of the sun's energies. And, you know, when you see light go through a prism, you see that whole rainbow effect. And so, so now you have each individual spectrum of light available to be interacted with. And the interesting thing about the Agnihotra pyramid is it resonates with the color green. And as we know, light and plants, life has a lot of green in it. And so you're resonating with a natural biorhythm. And the use of Sanskrit words, Sanskrit is, a, is, a, is the, the most ancient uh, language that we know to exist, and it is based off of the geometry of sound. So, you know, when you say something like "ohm," if you were to say that over a very shallow dish of water, you'll see a pattern emerge from that sound. Um, if you look into cymatics, cymatics is the study of sound vibrations' effect on matter, and you know, even in some of your ancient religious texts, you know, first was the word, first was a sound, a primordial sound that then everything else came into existence out of. So it's kind of tapping into these similar ideas of as we utter a primordial sound that influences matter as we're burning this fire at sunrise and sunset, and we're injecting charged particles into the atmosphere. Uh, we have a local atmospheric change effect that 
then that atmosphere that the plants consume is benefited. Um, and one of the interesting things, if you think about, you know, we're burning cow manure, which is already fermented earth, trees, grass, rock, dirt. Um, and so we're releasing this very broken down nature back into nature covered in ghee and it's a charged particle. And so charged particles draw in other particles to it. And so with it's, it's been found that, you know, repeated use of Agni Hotra morning, evening time for two weeks or more create a local uh, climate effect of that particular farm. Um, and it can be measured weather patterns shift a little bit. There's a little bit more precipitation, more dew on the ground, more mist banks in the morning. Whereas the, the monocropped fields nearby don't have those gentle precipitation changes and more of a, a moderation of the climate, less hots, less extreme colds, but very subtly. Yes. When you came out to the ranch a couple weeks back, and we had 15 or so guests from the community come out and you were teaching some of these biodynamic principles. We did the Agnihotra ceremony process. And um, I mean, this was a shared experience with other people that I was speaking to afterwards. It was a hot day. I mean, blazing hot and full sun. And when we did this, I damn near thought it was going to rain on us. <laughs> I, I don't know if you remember that because you were like in the zone of being a teacher, mm -hmm. uh, creating content where we were more consuming it, but it was instant shift. And two days ago at my daughter's school, they did a, um, like a veterans day ceremony a little bit early mm -hmm. and it was, it was a cloudy day and they had this, uh, at the very end of the ceremony, a bagpipe came out and he was playing Amazing Grace. Mm. And I think the bagpipe is, as you explained it, oh. like this beautiful primordial geometric sound that's just, if you don't feel it, I mean, it almost makes me cry every time I hear someone playing a bagpipe. Every time. And soon as he started playing the bagpipe, I swear there was a opening in the atmosphere where the sun shined down for that five minutes. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I don't know. John Muir talks about how in nature, you know, he had a famous saying, maybe he wasn't the first to say it, but you pull at one string and you recognize everything else is connected, kind of like a spider web. Yeah. But I, I think there's something to the connectedness here that you're pulling that string down at the earth, the surface of the soil, and it's connected to everything, even up higher into the atmosphere and the cosmos. And, you know, Speaking of higher in the atmosphere, you know, there have been studies done with Agnihotra putting, you know, tracers on, on the manure that's burnt and it's been located over eight miles above the earth's surface in the high atmosphere. So you're really, truly like punching a hole through the lower levels of atmosphere to allow whatever higher forces are coming from from the celestial astral realm. That's phenomenal. Into your local environment. Yeah. I think we, when we think of water, you know, you throw a stone in the water and you can really appreciate that when that stone is going through the water, waves of energy are moving. Those pressure waves. Throughout the entire yeah, system. Mm -hmm. You don't exactly perceive energy going upward doing the same thing because it's not as visual, mm -hmm. but I think it is. It's like that three-dimensional spider yep. web. It's like the black widow web where it's just this 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 system that goes in all directions. Yep. Any sound wave is going to go omnidirectionally until it hits something. Um, 
And yeah, so that's exactly what it's doing. We're taking this little resonating pyramid that's uh, resonating a beneficial frequency that resonates in tune with natural systems and cycles. And just like any musician knows, if you you know play a note on a guitar on this side of the room and the other guitar on the other side of the room is tuned the same, the string on the guitar is going to resonate mm-hmm. even if you don't touch it. There you go. Just because of that sympathetic resonance that occurs. So the the idea is the the pyramid and everything that we're doing, the the words, the vibrations, the time of day is all creating a resonance with a local natural biorhythm um, and attuning you, the operator, into your nature uh, and into your land more. And the the beautiful thing about this is, you know, currently um, we're in process of creating a, a documentary just about people around the world using this process. And we're finding people from every religious context, belief structure, ethnicity, culture, location on the planet that are just using it as a tool. It doesn't have to become anything larger than that. It's just a tool. We do it a specific time. We do a specific way and it works. Um, and you don't have to believe about any anything else than that. It's just a tool from ancient primordial times that someone knew how to do it. You know, similar to why, why are there thousands of pyramids across the planet Earth right now that everyone kind of scratches their heads and is like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. We live in a pretty uh, special time uh, where we can really contemplate, you know, some of these ancient technologies and pull them in and use them appropriately. And I think that's where I've always been super curious of, it seems like conventional agriculture leads to a lot of sadness. Um land, people, debts. Um, And so for a long time, I've just looked at what are the available, simple, cheap, effective technologies and tools that we could just do to have a beneficial effect. And this is kind of the the toolbox I found. Um, It's a great toolbox. And I'm going to start practicing Agni Hotra more frequently after that last experience, that last time we shared. Because it was good stuff. I've definitely found if you can stick to doing it every day for two weeks, you will absolutely notice something different sure. in in your life in a very good in a very good way. Yeah. Serendipities and and uh, good things just happen to come across your path a little bit more easily. Absolutely. So, um, kind of as we wrap this up, what can we learn about ourselves through some of these principles and lessons illuminated through the practices of biodynamics? I think one question is how much of my day-to-day is focused externally on the outward material world in front of us, in front of our senses? Um, We rely so heavily on our eyeballs and our sight, and it's such a limited uh, sense-perceivable organ that, you know, we're only picking up 0.01% of the available electromagnetic spectrum with our eyeballs. And there's a lot more going on. So the question is, how much am I focused outward versus how much am I focused inward? And can I shift inward a little bit more often? Somehow, some way, you know, sit for five minutes silently under a tree, connect your feet to the bare earth and, you know, wonder how you might be useful, um, you know, ponder these open-ended questions that don't have any specific answer, um, but make you 
turn your sense organs inward just for a hot second and ponder. I think we are deficient in time valued pondering our own thoughts and possibilities. So I, I would say that's been one thing that biodynamics has really encouraged me of like, there are these outward forces, these material things outside of you. And there's this inner world in you that's equally as rich. Um, and what's that look like? It's going to look different and feel different for every single person. Um, but I think that's, you know, Steiner really talked about how we need to evolve into spiritual scientists. So we need to acknowledge the spirit that flows through all things and find its wisdom inside of us, however that emerges, as well as be incredibly diligent scientists like Maria Thune, really discovering the principles of life in front of us and how can we work with that as well as what's inside of us and express both to its fullest potential. Yes. So much with agriculture and regenerative agriculture, we focused on the the outward, but again, reflecting on the inward. And I think um, really to recognize our own highest potential, it's really how much uh, energy, how much light can we hold within ourselves, which comes from that moment of silence and that inward reflection, that inward development. And when we light up ourselves, we light up our species, we light up our landscape, we light up the ecosystem. Um and I think it was even Zach Bush who kind of commented that like when we light up planet Earth, the rest of the cosmos are paying attention. And mm -hmm. so that's there's this opportunity for a phase shift of higher connectedness, higher um, awareness of this gift that we're given mm -hmm. to co-create with nature and to be a part of this system. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that shift of... Um from competitor to cooperator and to co-creator. That's, that's a beautiful new narrative to slip into. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, really using that inner space to define what we want and then really defining clearly what that is and not be distracted by the don't wants along the way. So there's always going to be something, you know, vying for your attention. There's multi-billion dollar organizations that specify in getting your attention. Um, so I feel like being able to uh, go through the, the fray of life without having your attention snatched away is, is kind of a, a new superpower <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> in a hyper busy world. Oh, totally, man. So where does, where, where does hope grow in your mind? I think in this turning inward, there is a great amount of hope because right now, so much of our, our world is materialist science that looks at the thing that we can study under a microscope is the end of it all. Whereas when we can really acknowledge that there is this entire beautiful soul filled universe inside of each of us, and we can acknowledge that and spend time with that and find how we can find others that share that and continue to grow um, in cooperation with nature ask for permission when we're doing things and start to work better in right relationship um, instead of this loud, angry human thing that just destroys and burns wherever we go into a true land steward that uh, has a more beautiful relationship with ourself, with our partners and our relationships and our families around us. We can, you know, if someone's having a 
a rough behavior, we can see that as an indicator, you know, instead of a, a blame and a conflict that emerges. But seeing the world as something's being presented to me as an indicator of something else, how can I be curious about this and find something useful to do with it, um, with a generally empathetic heart and mind that are connected and know that the entire natural system wants to work with us, you know, and we just have to open ourselves to that possibility and we become an interconnected part of this incredible cosmic system instead of one lonely individual trying to grow a food, which is really hard. <laughs> yeah. Well said. Well, thank you, Adam. Another great conversation. I don't even feel like that was too weird, but maybe <laughs> we're just our own unique audience. We'll have to see. You know, hope <laughs> I loved it. Hopefully folks are like, you know what? I'm just going to buy the thing, spray the thing and forget about it. And that is how you do it. Do you feel expanded? Can you appreciate the greater rhythms of nature to which you are from, to which you belong? Are you ready to start with your first horn manure preparation? Let's freaking go. Big shout out. Big thanks to Adam Russell. If you want to hang out or connect deeper with him, head over to symbiosistx.com or you can follow along on the adventure of life on Instagram at symbiosis underscore TX. Last but certainly not least, I want to give a huge shout out to the sponsor of this podcast, Force of Nature. Now, Force of Nature is the horn to my manure. This is such an amazing organization that allows me to have complete autonomy and freedom to pursue the topics that I'm interested in and to tell those stories and to share that information with you. One thing that really resonates with me is this idea of food containing some kind of fundamental element of spirit. And I truly believe the only way to have spirit within food is if that animal or that plant is raised within an environment in which it has co-evolved in which it can interact and express itself at the highest capacity and that right there is the product that force of nature is producing so you can get these regeneratively raised amazing animal proteins shipped to your door anywhere in the united states something that will not only contribute to building soil but also contribute to building soul and i'm going to let Adam Russell transition us out of this episode by reciting a four directional prayer that this man says every time he steps foot on land or anytime he steps into a room with other people that are there to learn and co-create with him. I think it's a lovely prayer full of reverence, full of gratitude. And that right there might just be the key to being a happy living soul. All right, Adam, take it home, buddy. So an introduction and appreciation from ourselves to this land in which we are standing. Facing east, we give gratitude to the rising sun and the inspiration that each new day brings us and each new opportunity arrives fresh on our doorstep um, to allow us an opportunity to, to have a choice 
gratitude to the east and all that it brings, gratitude to the water that resides in the high atmosphere, these great oceans of fresh water that travel our planet, collecting information, seeds and pollens and sands from so far away to bring and distribute in our local bioregion, wherever we may be. Gratitude to the rains that move in the air and allow us to breathe them in and those waters become our lungs and our blood. And that blood moves through our kidneys and becomes our urine and returns back to the earth. Gratitude for the cycle of water that travels and transports itself from high atmosphere to deep earth for eons and our place in that as we get to experience it for a very short amount of time. Gratitude to our ancestors, seven generations behind and seven generations ahead, those that brought us into this world and loved and worked and bled and struggled and strived to bring something better and newer for each new generation that brought us here today. Um, gratitude to those grandparents that loved us so well and brought our parents into existence so that we may create a future that our great, great, great grandchildren can be proud of uh, to bring them and allow them to fully step into their fullest potential in a new and different world than we know today. Gratitude to the voices and the names and the unnamed people of this land that came before us uh, here in central Texas, the Apache, the Comanche, the Tonkawa, the many tribes whose names I do not know, um, those hands and feet, those hearts and minds that came here before us and that strived to live and eke out an existence or thrived beyond imagination uh, with a connected co-creative capacity to this land. May our actions honor them and work with those desires to continue to work well and in right relationship with this land. And gratitude to nature, however it may present itself, trees and seeds, songs and noises of insects, gratitude for that orchestra that is around us, that fills our eyes with beauty and our ears with harmony and our olfactory senses, our noses and our, our tongues with tastes and smells. Gratitude for this incredible sea of biodiversity that we get to participate in on a daily basis. And moving to the south, gratitude for the heat of summer and the the strong feel of the sun as it brings forward photons from so far away that land upon awaiting leaves that photosynthesize fully through their chloroplasts and chlorophyll to create polysaccharide sugars that are injected into our soils in the form of, of nutrition for beneficial fungi and bacteria beneficial viruses and all things living that are supporting and growing uh, the vibrant world in front of us. Gratitude to the West, to the winds that blow in change and newness and bring in contrast to our life and keep things interesting as we move through our plans and replanning. Um, Gratitude to the storm cycles and to the pollens and the pollinators, 
the insects that bring information to us, whether we're doing well or whether we have room for improvement. And gratitude to the North, to the Mother Earth that allows us to get our hands dirty and to try and to fail and to move forward, failing forward more and trying harder and learning and being gentle on ourselves and being there to allow us to sleep deeply and rest so that we can continue to try tomorrow. Gratitude to the many connections and interconnectedness that the earth allows, those beautiful places that we've been allowed to wander and experience and have formative memories, for those reasons why many of us spend so much time outside, and for those who haven't had those experiences, you know, may, may we wish that, that more people find their way back to the earth and to sit comfortably in silence and to just soak it in. And that beautiful co-creative capacity, that caring that the natural world has for us and desires to work with us. And to that fifth sacred thing, that spirit that moves through and around all material, um, whatever name we may give that gratitude for our inspiration and for our voice and for our uh, try hardness to work with it every day and to surround ourselves with community and loved ones that believe in the fact that we can be better each day and we have yet to see our full potential on this earth. Thank you.